Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Mojo Show. Instead of talking about woo-woo or metaphysical topics or spiritual or philosophical topics, today I'm going to talk to you about the genius of Paul McCartney. That's right, that Paul McCartney, the one from the Beatles. Now let's talk about how Paul was the genius behind the Beatles with the help of George Martin. Now you may think it was John. You may think it was George. Nobody thinks it was Ringo. But I'm here to tell you that Paul McCartney was the genius behind the Beatles. And without him, there would not have been any Beatles. You could have taken out any of the others and still had the Beatles, but not Paul. So how do I know this and how can I possibly assert such an insulting assertion? Well, I'll tell you. When I was in high school, I got into the Beatles for the first time when I was about a junior. I was about 16 years old. And I was born in 1963, the year before the Beatles came to America. And so I had heard their music, but I really wasn't a big Beatles fan or anything like that at all. I wasn't particularly interested. But one day a friend of mine turned me on to a to get the reference there, turned me on to a radio show called Turn Me On Dead Man, Is Paul Dead? And so I, um, I listened to that radio show and it was on, you know, there was an encore play of it. And then I recorded it on my little Panasonic cassette recorder. And I listened to it several times. And what was fascinating about it was not the whole thing of Is Paul Dead? you know, turn me on dead man, that thing. What was fascinating to me was how much of their music I already knew and really liked. Like I just was ignorant of the Beatles at that point in my life. And now my sister was a little older than I, but she really, you know, she wasn't real into the Beatles either. So I grew up hearing them on the radio some and certainly hearing their solo work and I loved Paul McCartney and Wings. But other than that, you know, I really didn't know that much about them. So after hearing this radio show, which was just a really a lot of fun, I don't know if it's still out there. Uh, but if you um, if you have a chance to Google it, you might want to check out. Is it is it called Turn Me On Dead Man? Is is Paul dead? Is Paul dead? Turn Me On Dead Man. I think that was the name of it. Uh, anyway. That is how I got into the Beatles. After listening to that radio show, I started really doing a lot of research. And um, I started learning about the Beatles, not just about their music, but about them. So I would, um, oh, I bought countless books and studied them cover to cover thoroughly. Uh, one of the best books, if you're interested in reading about the Beatles and learning about them, is Shout, and that's that's a really good biography of the band. I think I've read that probably four or five times over the, the few years. You know, they say if you study something for an hour a day for seven years, you're an expert. That is about what I did. If I, if I first started doing research when I was 16, by the time I was 23, I was an expert because I definitely studied them literally at least an hour a day on average for seven years. 
I can promise you, and probably more than that. So that's what makes me an expert. I have read countless books about them. Some of them, some of the books that I've read, at least one that comes to mind, analyzed their music, critiqued it like a music critic, but also uh, talked about it from a musical standpoint, you know, like, like as if it were written for a musician to read. Um, I've also read varying accounts. There was a, um, there was a cheap little tawdry book about John Lennon written by his childhood buddy, Pete Shotton. And I don't know if, um, if he and John were really that close. I don't know that much about their relationship, but he did write a book that of course had to have something scandalous in it. And I won't tell you what it is, but you can check it out if you want to. That is spelled S-C-H-O-T-T-O-N, like cotton, but shotton. Um, so moving forward, now you you have some idea of, of my expertise. I've also listened to all their albums with all the lyrics a gajillion times, very often on headphones where I could pick out bits and pieces that I had read about, background sounds, um, knowing, you know, that, that their road manager played the anvil in Maxwell's Silver Hammer or whoever that was, that kind of thing. All those little things, little bits of trivia, but also the broader sense of who the Beatles were. I feel like, I feel like I've established my expertise. And actually, I want you to feel free to argue with me. I know that probably if you're listening to this, you probably are either a John or a George fan. John and George have their own, John Lennon and George Harrison have their own special cachet. Each of them has a special cachet that's just like um, people think, wow, what mystical, amazing, brilliant, wise men they were. Well, okay, that and yeah, a lot of drugs. Um, and, and I'm not saying that Paul didn't do drugs, but let's, let's take a look at, I've written down notes for this, so I'm, I'm sure to tell you everything. Let's take a look at my premise. Paul was the only genius, except for possibly George Martin, except I would say that George Martin, who was their producer, um, and he was a music musician and musicologist, he made Paul's sounds come to life. So Paul would say, I want it to sound like this. And George would score the music, direct the orchestra, choose the instruments, etc. Um, but Paul was the only genius for real. He would probably not have done quite as well without John Lennon, but John would not have made it at all without Paul. So you may know that they got together, the two of them, John and Paul, got together when they were kids. Um, I think, gosh, I think they were you know, 15, 16, 17, John was a couple of years older and they got together and they played skiffle and they were in different bands and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, eventually they, George was always tagging along with them and eventually they let him in. I mean, he was like 14, he was a kid. Um, but he really, really had talent on the guitar. And I will not deny that. George was an extremely talented and highly skilled guitarist. But when they were kids, he was talented, probably not skilled yet. Um, and then, of course, you probably know about Pete Best, their first drummer, and how they went to, and Stuart 
Sutcliffe, their first bassist, and how they went to Germany and played the clubs in Hamburg and they played the clubs in Liverpool where they were from and really honed their skills in front of an audience and just by sheer repetition, you know, just constantly playing in front of rowdy audiences and playing old songs and new songs and American songs and English songs. And they just, you know, did all of this. And so they, they became a group like that. Ringo was the last to join the group, if you're not aware. And I don't think anybody would argue that he was the genius behind the group. Uh, but, you know, Ringo's talent was in his personality. I'm not saying he was not a good drummer. He was a very good drummer. And in fact, uh, there's a video that I've seen of um, other drummers, other famous drummers, talking about Ringo, how he influenced them. And they're sitting at a drum kit like Ringo's and playing, you know, imitating his playing and talking about the different riffs that he would play. It was, it's a great little video. You should definitely look that up on, on YouTube. But Ringo's talent is in his personality. I mean, yes, he's, he's a good drummer. He's unquestionably very good. And he has a specific style that is charming and innovative and uh, good to listen to. But he's not the genius behind the Beatles. His personality is, is very winning, uh, but the Beatles could have been the Beatles without him. And I dare say the Beatles could have been the Beatles without George as well, but we'll get to more of that in a minute. All right. So I, like I said, I acknowledge that John and George each had a cachet and an appeal of their own, but here's where they diverge from Paul. Paul's work has always been either complex or clean and simple in a very musical way. Whereas John and George both were guilty of um, overly simplistic music. Now, that's not necessarily true if they had someone else working with them. For example, George Harrison collaborating with Eric Clapton. Sorry, that I almost said Eric Burden. I was like, wait, that's not right. Eric Clapton, who was also, I mean, they were contemporaries and they were probably two of the top five guitarists in the world at their heyday. Um but John, you know, John was a wordsmith. John Lennon was a wordsmith and he was very, very good with words and he always was. And, and so his anthem, Imagine, is widely regarded as exceptional and for good reason, but it's because of the words. Now, the simplicity of the music is also supposed to be part of the genius of the song. But think about this. What if, in addition to the wise and brilliant words of Imagine, the melody and the music were powerful and sophisticated and complex with nuances that were subtle but meaningful? That's the way Paul McCartney writes. Now let's talk a little bit about George, I'll have more to say about John Lennon later, but George Harrison, bless his heart, the whole time he was in the Beatles, John and Paul were in control of most of 
what songs went onto their albums. And they would hardly ever let George put one of the songs that he wrote on an album. Uh, George was able to record more of his, his songs, quote unquote, his songs, but the ones that he had written, he was allowed to record more of them on their records as they went along after they stopped touring. And he had already been writing songs. Then they would put a little bit here and there. I believe Abbey Road was the one that had the most songs written by him, which was, or maybe it was the one that had the most hits by him, which was, you know, um, something and here comes the sun. So both of those were huge hits off of Abbey Road and for good reason. I mean, they're very melodious and very, um, each one has something very special about it. However, again, if you go back and look at the lyrics and the melodies, they're very simple and not George Harrison had a way of repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating a lot of his songs were just the same the same lyrics over and over and the same melody over and over uh kind of drives me crazy when some on some of them there was one that he recorded with the traveling wilburys about it's going to take money a whole lot of spending money it's going to take money to do it right to do it right and it just goes on and on in these exact same lyrics repeated again and again and the exact same melody with no break and I just want to stab someone. So let's get back to George and his songwriting and his career with the Beatles before the breakup of the Beatles. So he was not allowed to have very many of his songs on their albums, but he was writing rather prolifically. He was composing a lot of songs even though they weren't recording them. The songs were not being recorded. So when the Beatles broke up in 1970, George almost immediately, not immediately, but pretty quickly, released a triple album, which you may be familiar with. It was called All Things Must Pass, and it was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. I, I don't know how many Grammys he won for it. It was this massive chronicle of his work. And that was, I believe it was because, or I understand probably from all my years of study, even though it was a long time ago, he had this backlog or, or I should say a catalog of songs that had never been recorded with the Beatles. And so he was able to create a three disc album of all of this music that he'd had. He didn't, the Beatles didn't break up and then he went and wrote 87 songs, he had a lot of songs that he really wanted to put out there. And he finally got to do that. And that was great. He had a little hiccup when he got sued uh, by the, the writer of, um, he's so fun, doolang, 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 because it sounds exactly like my sweet Lord, do lang, do lang, do lang. So um, he was sued for plagiarism and lost. And so he had to pay back, pay quite a bit to the writers of that song for that problem. Um, but, you know, and musicologists these days are saying that that plagiarism lawsuits should not even be a thing because um, 
we are naturally drawn to certain rhythms and sounds and combinations of notes and that it's pretty hard not to sound a little bit like something somewhere. Uh, and I could, oh, I could do a whole episode about that. Let's get back to Paul. Now that we've talked a little bit about that. Um, Paul came from a musical family. His father, James McCartney, after whom Paul was named, um, had Jim Max jazz band and he played, oh gosh, all of a sudden, I don't know what he played trombone, maybe anyway, he, he was a musician and Paul McCartney originally started learning trumpet. And then he, he said, and then my lip went funny and he picked up the guitar instead. And I'm not sure what happened to his lip, but he does have like this little thing on the side, on the left side. You ever notice that? a little uh, anomaly in his lip. So he didn't play trumpet, but he came from a musical background. And I just recently heard this wonderful story. It was after the Beatles had gotten their start and Paul and John were still hanging out at Paul's childhood home and um, writing music and playing and practicing and hanging out. And when they wrote, She Loves You, they played it for Paul's dad. And his, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so his dad said, this was Jim Mack, James McCartney, Paul's dad. He said, you know, there's too many Americanisms. Why, instead of yeah, why don't you use yes? She loves you. Yes, yes, yes. That's so much more British. And I learned that story recently. I thought it was the cutest, most charming thing. Obviously, would have been an entirely different song. So... Paul came from a musical family. He had a piano in his home. He probably took piano lessons, if I recall correctly. Um, so there was no question that he and John made a genius team. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying that they were a songwriting powerhouse together. What I'm saying is that I believe that Paul would have still been Sir Paul McCartney without John Lennon. I don't think he would have been, it would not, it would not have been the same, but certainly post touring when the Beatles quit touring in 66 and became a strictly studio band and they started to really explore other sounds that they could not achieve on stage. That was when Paul's genius really started to stand out. Now I want to point out, I am the walrus as being a song that was written by John after supposedly after a long weekend of dropping acid, I think it was. And uh, so that it, I am the walrus, the lyrics there really show John's genius with words. And I was personally influenced by some of his writing. I, I liked his cleverness with words. And that was really, you know, that was it in a way that was how he was similar to Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan was, Ooh, you know, we're not worthy. He was very much their idol. They idolized him quite a bit and would love to have been influenced by him. Um, but I really saw there the similarity between John Lennon and Bob Dylan was that they had strong lyrics. Neither one had a particularly good voice, honestly. I mean, John's voice was sufficient and it was uh, distinctive. 
whereas Bob Dylan's voice is horrible and I can't stand to listen to it. But that's my opinion, and you probably have a different one. Uh, but John Lennon's voice was not, you know, was not great vocal quality. It was certainly passable. It was very listenable. Um, but his music, the writing of the music itself, especially noticeable after the Beatles broke up in his solo work, he and Dylan had that in common. Terrific lyrics, lousy music. And okay, lousy is not fair because other people who have recorded Dylan's songs make me like those songs a lot. So, you know, I have to be fair about that. I mean, I, I can't discount the influence of Bob Dylan on popular music. I just don't want to listen to him sing. Uh, but, but John Lennon's solo work really showed where he came from, and it showed how much influence Paul's talent had on John, on John's work. It showed the difference, the contrast between the Beatles output and John Lennon's solo output is palpable. It is, it is a very considerable, I mean, there's really no comparison because while his lyrics remained strong, he never, I, I contend that he never produced any music that was as good as the Beatles music on his own. And, you know, his last album, Double Fantasy, that he did with, and he recorded with Yoko, um, it had that wonderful song, Woman, that I just love. I love Beautiful Boy, which was written about his son, Sean. There are some definite pieces that I say, wow, I really love this song by John Lennon. But musically speaking, they are not the quality that the Beatles produced, and they're not the quality. They're nowhere near the musical level of Paul McCartney's solo work. And this is how we know that Paul was the genius in the Beatles. I want to talk a little bit about the album and the film that became Let It Be. Let It Be was released was the last album released, but it was recorded before Abbey Road. All right, so let's think about this. Whoa, sorry about that. So let's think about this. It was recorded before Abbey Road, and, and the idea was to make a documentary of the band at work, right? And it was a wonderful idea. The execution turned out to show the decline and fall, the disintegration of this group of four brothers, this family that had been so close and so magical. And they're in, in the movie, if you ever see it, if you have a chance to see it, you can see them breaking down. There are arguments, there are disagreements about how to play and what to play and when to play and who said what and who did this and who did that and Yoko's in the way and everybody is having trouble. I mean, the tension is very, uh, it's almost, it's almost tangible. You know, the tension between them is difficult and they play not as a band, but as a soloist, each one of them plays as a soloist with a, with a backup band, basically. So there's very little cohesion 
with them in Let It Be. And that that comes to, to be evident in the album as well, in the music. The Long and Winding Road, that is all Paul, right? Um, they did manage to pull off a couple of... Uh, couple of things that that went back to their youth their beginnings like John and Paul played the one after 909 on let it be am I getting that right yes I am okay sorry I had to stop and check myself um so that song was one that they had written a long time ago and they brought it back and it just really it sounds like they are enjoying playing with each other again and I don't mean that in a dirty way uh, but they, it sounds like they're like, ah, oh, this is like when we were kids, when we were 18 and we would play this song. This is great, you know. But most of the album is very bitty, um, which is a British slang for like um, disjointed. And it really, really shows. And it's a shame that it came out after Abbey Road when Abbey Road was recorded after that. When they did Abbey Road, the Beatles went into the studio and they said, we are going to be a band. We're going to create an album. And even though you can feel each songwriter's personality in the songs on Abbey Road, as I mentioned something earlier by George Harrison, it's a very George song. Uh, Octopus's Garden is a very Ringo song. But when you listen to them, they are playing as a group. It's really heartbreaking, or it was for me as I as I studied them and came to love them. It is it is heartbreaking to watch them fall apart, and then to hear them in the genius that is Abbey Road, to hear them really give it one last shot before they walked away. So let it be. Back to let it be, and the white the white album was probably the most separate kind of a deal. And eventually, somewhere in there, I think it was 1969, the Beatles released the song, The Ballad of John and Yoko. But the Beatles did not record The Ballad of John and Yoko. John wrote it, obviously. And everybody was kind of off on holiday or doing their own thing. They they just weren't, no, nobody was together. And John was madly in love and had had this experience that he wanted to share through song. And he went to Paul with it. And Paul said, well, I'll do it with you. And they went in the studio, just the two of them. And Paul played all the instruments except rhythm guitar. And Paul sang backup for him. And they got John's song released as a single. That was something that Paul did for John. And you can hear it when you listen to the ballad of John and Yoko. You can hear their camaraderie, their brotherhood. You can hear it in the song. So I want you to listen to that. So I've, I've uh, gone over all of that about how things kind of worked with the Beatles. And I've talked about John Lennon's solo work and George Harrison's solo work. I want to talk about their breakup and then about Paul's solo work. They, before they broke up, they basically broke up several times. The Beatles, each one of them, each of the four of them, at one point walked away. 
said, I've had enough of you guys. Screw you. I'm out of here. John at one point said, I want a divorce, like my divorce from Cynthia. And that didn't, that didn't take at that time, but he was the one who said that to the other band members. George, um, at when, at when they were working on Hey Jude, George wanted to play echoes of the lyrics on his guitar. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. And Paul didn't like that sound. And George was quite offended by that. Now that's just a one little tiny little snapshot out of all of this, but that was the kind of thing that caused them problems. That's the kind of thing that led to their breakup. One time Ringo had had enough and he didn't come into the studio and Paul went over to ask him to please come back and play with the band that he was loved and he was needed. And when Ringo did decide to come back, Paul had covered his drum kit in roses. And, you know, that's that again, that's kind of like talking about their brotherhood and their, their family relationship that was really, really special. But they all, um, they all at one time or another left the group. And then Paul was the one who announced it first. And actually John, at least if not the others was kind of miffed because Paul just took it upon himself to announce that they were breaking up or that they were done. And John felt like they should have done it differently. You know, maybe he felt like they should have put out a joint statement or something, but Paul said, we're done. We're not going to do this anymore. And so after the Beatles broke up, Paul wanted to be in his words, just be in a band again. And you may know this story that he hooked up with Denny Lane and Hamish Stewart. And of course his lovely Linda, which was a song on his first solo album. Um, and they, they made an album. They put out McCartney and then uh, he formed Wings and they went and um, now on McCartney, that was before Wings. He, he did, I think he did it all himself probably, probably wrote all the songs and, and uh, played all the instruments. I'm not sure, honestly, I'd have to go and check the album. Um, but then he got Denny Lane and Hamish Stewart and they went, they went and toured. They literally got in a van. I mean, here's Paul McCartney of the Beatles in a van touring around England, stopping off at universities and going to the student union or the club there. And, and they'd come in and play for an hour before word really got out. And then they'd pack up and leave, you know, so that he wouldn't get mobbed or whatever. And, and there they were, they, he was in a band again and he loved being in a band. And, you know, a lot of Wings earlier work before Band on the Run and before their world tour in 76, I think it was, um, a lot of Wings earlier work went kind of unnoticed, uh, at least at least in terms of what was played on the radio that I'm aware of. Like, I really didn't know a lot about London Town or Wings at the Speed of Sound or Back to the Egg. Ooh, Back to the Egg may have been after Band on the Run. Again, see, I got to check those little tiny facts. Was it Friday or Thursday that they recorded that? Um, so some of those earlier albums were just wonderful. And when, when I was studying at that time, I would, you know, I'd get a new Paul McCartney album. Oh, here's Wings, you know, um, 
London Town, which I think is highly underrated. I love London Town. And I was a freshman in college then and I was bored and didn't want to study. And so I would lie there and put the headphones on and listen. And I'd listen to all those little nuances and those sly little things in the background that Paul would put in there. And it was, it was wonderful to hear those. And London Town remains to this day, one of my favorite albums of all time. Abbey Road's my favorite. I love Super Tramp's Breakfast in America. That's another favorite. The Eagles Hotel California. And, you know, London Town. I mean, those are some of the best, some of the best albums ever made. Now, Band on the Run, which was Paul McCartney and Wings, Band on the Run rivals Sgt. Pepper's for a concept album and in in musicality. Definitely rivals the the the, the tight production of Sgt. Pepper's. That the production on and I'm not talking about the live music from band on the run that was played on the world tour album. You also often hear live versions of those songs, but the album of band on the run and the album of Sergeant Peppers, I believe are among the best also. Yeah. They're also among my, my favorites, but musically speaking from a pop music standpoint, those albums are, what would you compare that to? What would you call them? They're Bibles. They are, they are the, the best of the best of the best, sir. Um, those, those albums are really comparable. And if you look at Sgt. Pepper's, which happened shortly after, was that the first album? That was the first album after they stopped touring. And you look at Band on the Run, 1976, and you put the two of those together, you put them side by side, there's not a whole lot of difference. And, you know, after Wings got up and running, and people were still saying, when are the Beatles getting back together? When are the Beatles getting back together? Can, can you do a reunion tour? Are you going to do another album? And George Harrison very famously was quoted as saying, you want the Beatles? Listen to Wings. And the reason is that he recognized what I'm saying, which is that the Beatles were heading in that direction already by Sgt. Pepper's. They were heading in that direction of that kind of complex, strong musicality that was completely lacking in George and John's later solo work. But it was totally there with Paul and Wings. And this, my friend, is why I say that Paul McCartney is the genius behind the Beatles. I didn't talk much about George Martin. And I want to acknowledge his contribution to the success of the Beatles because he was actually a musician. He could read and write music. He could arrange music, which means uh, for the uninitiated, arranging music means determining which notes each instrument will play. Right. So, you know, if you've got an orchestra or a force uh, or a, a string quartet behind a song, like uh, the orchestra in uh, behind A Day in the Life or the string quartet in For No One. Ooh, For No One. I love that with the French horn solo. So when you, or the string quartet in um, Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. 
So when you put those things behind that, they, they would bring in musicians and George Martin, the producer, would score the music. So he'd write down the music for the musicians, the session musicians, to read the music and play. Now, John and Paul and George and Ringo were all said never to have learned to read or write music. So when you play uh, guitar, for example, when you play rhythm guitar like John did, you learn the chords. And you might be able to, you can just write that down. You go, oh, well, that's a D chord and that's a G minor. You can play like that. But if you are playing a cello, you need written music to play. And so George Martin was responsible for all of that. He played piano on, ooh, what was that song? Okay, I'll think of it in a minute. So George Martin, with his production and his musical ability, his his arrangement of music, his uh, writing skills and musical skills, his training, really allowed him to be what a lot of people would refer to as the fifth Beatle. Because without him and his producing and musical skills, their, their sound would have been flatter. It would not have been as full as it was. I will say one quick note about Let It Be, which I neglected earlier. When, they, when the Beatles uh, recorded the music and the documentary for Let It Be, the reason that it was not released ahead of Abbey Road, which was recorded after, is that they had so many hours of film so much footage, just miles and miles of footage, and so much audio tape that nobody was willing to take it on to distill it down into an album and an hour and a half or two hour documentary. It was so much that, and by then the Beatles didn't care. They were like, whatever, put it in a vault. We don't care. And eventually, Phil Spector produced the album. George Martin did not produce Let It Be. Phil Spector did. And he um, used his famous wall of sound on songs like The Long and Winding Road. And um, Paul McCartney has always said that that song was way overproduced, that he would not have done it that way himself. And if you hear him, you know, play The Long and Winding Road live, you can tell the difference. It's tremendously different. All right. In conclusion, now you know that Paul McCartney, with a little help from George Martin, was the real genius behind the Beatles. I do want to hear your opinion, and I will say, he is the genius. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs>